Okay, well, on behalf of Mark and myself, thank you very much uh, for a, a tremendous audience uh, and the chance to share with you some very exciting uh, uh, progress in research, uh, which is really becoming translated in a very real sense to benefit patients, people suffering a range of diseases, and also in a much deeper way, cementing the contribution of the Cambridge environment and the UK environment into science and medicine for the future. So hopefully we can bring some of that to, uh, to you today. Uh, my purpose is to set the stage a little bit for genomes, uh, what they look like and what we've been doing to really fathom out the mutational spectrum that causes disease in genomes. Uh, and Mark will then take on to really the, the driving force of the project that uh, we've already had introduced. So first of all, just as a reminder, or for those of you who are relatively new to it, we hardly ever see our genomes. So just for a moment, I thought I'd show you one. And this is what a genome looks like down the microscope. And you can see the chromosomes that are well known. And if you examine in more detail and tease them out, you start to see something more fundamentally fibrous about the structure of DNA. And then when you remove those globules, which are proteins, you actually see the naked DNA once again in the highest possible magnification. And you can see those strands, those swirls of DNA. And that's the linear DNA. That is the DNA. The linearity gives it many of its properties in genetics and has enabled us to make good use of that strand or, or string, if you will, to actually both uh, uh, characterize it in the first place uh, and more recently to characterize it in individuals. From this point on, of course, we move into the realms of modeling, and this is the model of the DNA double helix, uh, which, of course, was again discovered or modeled here in Cambridge. Uh, and, and this is the decoding of the step-by-step -step process. Each step in this ladder is really the sequence of DNA that we are talking about in each one of us and is so fundamental to the project that we're talking about today. So this, just to continue the illustration in another sense, as you decode DNA, this four-letter alphabet appears to you, and you actually see in places bases you didn't expect. And here they're colored in red or blue. Uh, and these will be differences between individuals. And just to give a summary of what's in your genome, uh, there are three billion bases in every genome. You actually carry two of them, one from each parent. And together they encode around 22,000 genes or functional units that encode proteins and quite a lot more besides, which we're not going to talk about. And there are perhaps three million differences between two genomes, uh, and that is what we're sifting through to look at what makes people individual, and indeed what makes one person sick and another person uh, remains healthy. It's all about the differences between the genomes that we are trying to characterize through determining the DNA sequence of each person. Just to look at how that reflects in the biology of the organism, a genome is a complete description of your genetic makeup. It is not static, it is dynamic. And what I mean by that is there are two very important elements of how we look at genomes. The first is the germline. There's the initial inheritance, the formation of the zygote from the parents, uh, and, and there are mutations, if you will, or differences, the green which are inherited. But secondly, beyond that process, you see continuing accumulation of changes in the DNA sequence. And these are somatic, not germline. And it is the accumulation of these somatic changes in some people that can give rise to cancer uh, and actually cause the, the cancerous disease. So you have germline and you have somatic. You have, in this case, genetic disease and you have cancer, which is also a disease of the DNA. Just to reflect on the contributions of Cambridge for a moment, seeing as we are very much on home territory, I've already mentioned the structure of the DNA double helix, uh, uh, modeled by Watson and Crick and published in 53. Uh, the continuing work by Fred Sanger, uh, also here in the Laboratory of Molecular Biology in Cambridge, uh, developing a DNA sequencing method which uh, uh, underpinned all of the research uh, for, for many years, including the human genome itself, the Human Genome Project. 
And then, as you can see, the continual relaxation of the environment, uh, the lab environments took on a new flavor altogether. Uh, when the latest uh, uh, founders of, of the, this technology, the Shankar and, and David, Shankar Balasubramani and David Penniman, uh, seen here in 2006, after, in fact, about nine years' work, I thought they deserved a break, uh, and, and uh, uh, in actual fact, uh, continue to work on, on the foundation of this technology from the chemistry department just up the road. So what did they actually invent and what was really developed by the, the, the company, Selexa, uh, and then more recently, Illuminar, uh, from which I'm now fortunate to be, to be a member? This was the method, and just to illustrate something of the flavor of all the technologies from the surrounding uh, uh, skills uh, which came together to make this method. It's still DNA. Uh, in this case, the DNA is immobilized on a glass slide. It's a microscope slide. Uh, and there are many billions of points in the microscope slide used for each one of these. Uh, and these then act as templates. And here's one template for DNA sequencing. Uh, on the other hand, the development of these rather unique building blocks for DNA, these reversible terminators, quite a long way from the natural building blocks. But you can see here the importance of the chemistry in actually devising these molecules that would effectively contribute uh, not just to the synthesis of DNA, but the ability to actually color code each base as it was formed so that we can then take photographs and collect the images. And you can see here successive images. And you can see a particular cluster changing color as you go from one image to another. And that really uh, capitalizes or ca captures the digital information of each piece of DNA on each cluster from each molecule on the microscope slide. And this is happening a billion times uh, in a relatively small area of the microscope slide. So that just encapsulates some of the technology innovation that is underlying this new method. What about its impact? It was entirely disruptive, uh, disruptive like few other technologies, in the sense that this is the growth uh, in output over a period of seven years or so. And you can see the technology really unlocked uh, new uh, possibilities. Uh, and it went through approximately a million-fold growth in output. And just to give you some context, the Human Genome Project, which was sequenced by the previous technology, uh, was actually finished in 2004. And you can see the growth in technology since that time, which is what has opened up the opportunities that, that, you, that we have today. And Mark will, will, will flag that as well in his talk. Uh, to look at it another way, from a $3 billion genome in seven years to a $1,000 genome in three days, uh, that's really what has made it possible to look at the, the impact of genome sequencing on every one of us or everybody in the hospital. Um, and here is also more fundamentally, I think, a tipping point for science. If you look at falling costs, of course, you see a company is a massive growth in the actual number of genome sequence. And this is really the birth of personal genome sequencing, which is very much here today uh, and very much here tomorrow as well. So how do we use it? Uh, and this illustrates a concept that goes back some uh, uh, 10 to 12 years, in that all the accumulated knowledge of the biologists working on genomes and genetics is up on the top left of that slide there. Uh, and you can see here just a schematic of all the information that's gone into understanding a human genome. And from it, perhaps, has been synthesized the relatively small but crystal amount of medically important information from that, which is going to essentially contribute to interpreting a person's illness and here on the, on the right-hand side, you have a personal sequence, uh, which is essentially coded in, in three days, decoded in three days. And the two elements come together, the public information and the private individual sequence, uh, to inform the clinical decision. Not replacing existing medical practice, but supplementing existing medical practice and bringing a whole new lens, if you will, the genome itself and the knowledge of a person's genome to actually understand the disease. 
What's also important is the aspect of every case gives us a lesson to learn for the next case. And so it's very important to feed that information back into the public domain to help a real virtuous cycle of discovery take place. And that's very much what uh, the, the project is all about. Here's an example of one case. It was in 2012, and this was reported just at the time when we were discussing the possibility of this whole project taking place in the UK. This was, in fact, during the Olympics that were held in London. And here's an example of an undiagnosed condition. Nobody knows what's wrong. The family is really suffering some severe angst uh, as this child simply fails to, to develop. Uh, and actually, we produced a test, the whole genome test, the complete genetic makeup in four days, so it's clinically relevant uh, to the case. And then what about those three million differences that we were confronted with? Well, here is the answer. We very quickly filter down. I mentioned there were 22,000 genes. Only 13,000 of them carried a mutation. And then we went on down the filter to look at genes that are known to be involved in disease, ones that are predicted to really make a damaging effect on the, on the individual cell biology. And as a result, you get right down to one or a very small number of candidates. Uh, and then, th at that point, the genome having spoken, if you will, that is then combined with the clinical observations to confirm at the molecular level, at the single base level, this particular mutation completely correlates, or the knowledge of the function of the, of the, uh, the gene correlates with uh, the apparent observed uh, clinical observations in, 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 in the kindred. And so that illustrates how the genome and the clinical information come together at the end. Just to touch on cancer for a moment, because the examples of cancer are equally important, and here is a recurrent tumor that uh, failed to respond to treatment, once again a whole genome sequencing test, revealed in this case some rather bigger variants, these copy number variants, amplified DNA in various segments of the genome. But once again, like the previous case, it touched on a really important area of biology, which was previously known. The genome, the knowledge of the sequence, brings together the biology and applies it to the patient. And in this case, a whole signaling pathway that controls the growth of cells uh, was uh, essentially disrupted by these amplifications. Moreover, uh, in this case, uh, knowledge of this pathway, which the DNA had revealed, also revealed the availability of existing treatments that could actually block the process, and this information was fed back to the patient. So here, a whole genome sequence is not just offering a diagnosis, it is in this case defining options for treatment of the patient. And these vignettes, these anecdotes, are what really helped to drive both technology development and then the possibility of scaling up, which Mark will, will, will talk to in, in a moment. Um, just to talk a little bit about the concepts of the whole genetic makeup, DNA is mutated in many ways. It's not just single red and single blue changes. You see single changes, that's the top line. But you also see these big copy number variants, which I showed you in the cancer case. But you see other curious events going on in DNA that cause disease, expansions of short repeats, big structural rearrangements between parts of chromosomes. And also not even in the chromosomes, but in the mitochondrial DNA, which of course has been in the news recently because of the three parent baby debate, where the mitochondrial DNA is defective. There are mutations here. And once again, the DNA sequence, if you do it all in one go, you can report on these variants as well. So it really is one test to rule them all. Um, the impact in diagnosing rare disease, just to bring you up to date a little bit more, uh, and just illustrate more of the cases. This illustrates how the multiple mutations have to be detected precisely and accurately in order to make a diagnosis. Uh, here, in fact, is a de novo mutation, not previously seen in mankind or in any sequenced genome, a novel mutation, difficult to find. You wouldn't know where to look. It was a, a novel gene. 
Um, in this case, uh, a, a, another condition where actually a very large mutation, a 55,000 base uh, uh, copy number change uh, in a gene revealed the cause of this disease from a child who was in intensive care. And here's an example where two come together. There's a single base mutation, but there's also one of those big mutations lying in the same gene, knocking out both your father's and your mother's copy of the gene and essentially resulting in this, what we call a compound heterozygote. It's a compound or a combination of two different mutations which have to be seen, detected, in order to make the diagnosis. So this is something of the complexity uh, that, that, that goes around the, the concept of trying to diagnose rare genetic disease. The impact on cancer, just to look at it from a slightly different perspective, is a tremendous study from collaborators in Newcastle, where something like 22% of uh, acute lymphocytic leukemias remained unexplained at the DNA level, but once we applied the one test to rule them all, the whole genome sequencing test for these cancers, we actually discovered mutations in uh, pretty much every single one of them, I think bar one or bar two, uh, bar one, um, and actually therefore considerably increase our understanding of this type of cancer so that now the clinicians can really work to understand every case that comes through the clinic uh, and apply a single test and start to characterize what's going on in this. And hopefully this principle will expand to other cancers, extend to other cancers as well. We, we wait to see. Uh, my final slide before we hand over to Mark is to illustrate that from this concept, and this iter reiterates the slide I showed earlier, really, uh, in that you have at the heart of this whole process a patient, and you have the entire health service, health provision, from birth or from before birth to death, which is a timeline of an individual, who goes through a whole series of events. This happens to be a cancer case. Now, and you can see here that on the bottom, there is a whole series of points in a person's life where measurements are made. You've all had them done, blood tests, eye tests, whatever it might be. But also DNA tests can be done, and some have been done. Uh, and you can see here the possibility to really follow a person's life and ask what their genome, what their DNA sequence says to us, uh, the doctors and the scientists. And that is really a full characterization of both the medical observations and the molecular, the DNA observations of this person. And that is a unit of knowledge which we have never had until now. Now scale it up. You have many patients. You accumulate the information for each patient. You, of course, submit it somewhere central so that it can be accessed. And you then provide support both for research, which is that virtuous cycle that I mentioned at the beginning. But also, of course, this knowledge base, this growing in growth in knowledge, also contributes. Whatever you found out about the last patient may be useful for the next patient. And that's where, of course, the clinician comes in to make a more informed treatment choice based on everything that has gone on uh, previously. This is a shared vision because it was shared within Illuminar and shared, in fact, with, with, uh, with the, uh, the, the people who formed the whole Genomics England concept and, and, and also in other countries as well. And I think the point is, of course, that people have genomes the world over, people have disease the world over, and so we hope very much that this new lens uh, that the genome brings to supplement, to complement the existing clinical observations is a vision where we can really uh, stimulate a new era of medicine a medicine that understands the cause of the disease and is precise both in the diagnosis and the subsequent treatment. So let me hand over at this point to Mark, Mark Caulfield, to uh, take the story on. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a real privilege to be here with you this evening in Cambridge. I'm going to share with you a little bit about the 100,000 Genomes Project and how we're using the platform of this program to transform the application of 
genomics in our health system. So the first human genome was sequenced around this time when uh, these people who you may remember vaguely, the President then of the United States, uh, you might want to see some of these people again, but actually these days you might wish he would come back, um, this fellow. And there they are with Craig Venter announcing the first human genome um, with the head of NIH. Now, in 2000, around 2000, 2003, one single genome cost 3.2 billion to sequence. If we did the 100,000 genomes project at that price, no governments on this planet would be able to do it. So today, the genome is now about $1,000, and it's falling in price. So this makes this affordable. This is akin to tests that we use every single day in the health system. The origin of this project is very unusual. It wasn't a grant written by a group of scientists. It was actually from this place. And who here can recognize what that is? Anybody want to have a go? It's the London 2012 uh, Olympic opening ceremony. And at the Olympics, the then Prime Minister David Cameron held a meeting of scientists from around the world, and they advised him that the moment was right for a health system like our National Health Service to take on transforming genomic medicine for patients with diseases using whole genome sequencing. So just reading as much as you and I can today of our genetic code, that 3.3 billion letters that David mentioned. And today we can read about 98% of it, and we can read it pretty well. The quality of it's very good. So I'll tell you a little bit about the project. So it's 100,000 genomes, and it's focused on rare inherited disease, oops, sorry, rare inherited disease, cancer, and infection. And the reason for that is because these were the disease areas where there was potential for a benefit in the health system today. We might be able to give diagnoses back to patients affected by rare diseases. We might be able to choose cancer therapies based on the genetic code. We might be able to spot resistance in bacteria that would allow us to derive a new generation of antibiotics, which we very badly need. So these were real tractable benefits to the health system today. So it's 100,000 genomes, but it's not 100,000 people. And the reason for that is we spend more genomes on cancer because we sequence the person's DNA that they inherit from their mum and dad in either their blood or the saliva, and we compare it with the DNA of the tumour. And that means that comparison allows us to identify the changes in the tumour that are driving the development of the tumour, might drive the lapse of the tumour, might drive recurrence, and importantly, may also allow you or I to choose a therapy that's right for that person for their cancer. Now, the genomes are big in size, and so um, it's about 21 petabytes of data. Um, if anyone still has one, and anyone who's under 30 won't probably have heard of these things, but if you still have an MP3 player in your attic, uh, it was a tiny little device for playing music. It would take you uh, 2,000 years to play one petabyte of music on that device. So when we started this, we looked around and looked at what infrastructure there was to do this. And actually, um, it was, in all honesty, the NHS had been relatively underinvested in this area for a number of years. And so this was a real chance to change the whole way the NHS in England thought about this. So with the National Health Service, we established 13 genomic medicine centres that are spread across England. So there is geographic equity of access to this programme across the whole of England, all 52 million people. And that involves 85 NHS trusts. And each week, 
1,500 NHS staff of different types work on this project, enrolling patients, preparing samples, providing us with the clinical data that allow us to sequence the genome and bring them back answers. Now, because this is really tough to do, and it's very difficult to interpret these things, and we're really at the forefront in the world in doing this, we thought we'd better get a coalition of clever people, like uh, people in this town here. And so we advertised for, two, for a number of researchers and their trainees from around the world to come and help us interpret the genomes. So what this means is that we're creating an ecosystem where we have bought the excellence of our universities like the one we're in today right up against our health service. So people are innovating in this program inside the universities in real time and within six weeks to three months we move it into the health system. And I'll show you some of the things we've been able to do, which is very, very rare to do, getting the NHS rapidly to adopt change. So this is the structure of the program, and it's unusual in this respect. This is a National Health Service transformation project, and so it faces the National Health Service, and the aim is that the empowered NHS through its genomic medicine centres enrols the participants with the various diseases we're working on under a quite broad, informed consent, supplies us with the important data and samples. They flow into a biosample centre, which is in Milton Keynes, and we take DNA, we also take other samples for what might be called multi-omics, we might come to that later. And then uh, we tested the world's suppliers of sequencing, and we chose to work with Illumina because they were better able to do this than any other company, and they had the best product. And we structured this as a partnership because it's not clear how to do all of this. And so what we've done is work together as a team to solve the problems with research and development as we've gone along. And on the Hingston campus of the Genome Center, there is the first NHS genomic sequencing center, and that's run by David's colleagues at Illumina, and they sequence the genomes, and then they come together with all the healthcare data that have been provided on the patient relating to their disease. Now, we don't want this to be static, because your genome can continue to give information about your health over your lifetime. So what we do is, with your permission, we collect all your NHS records in primary care, all hospital contacts you have, all the cancer registries or other registries the NHS holds, and sadly, should the participants sadly pass on, we collect the cause of death so that we can understand the journey of these people with these diseases so we can help to use that information potentially to develop better treatments and approaches to those diseases. When we've got the data back, we return an initial report to the NHS, which might say we have found something of relevance to that individual, or it might say that we haven't found anything yet. But what it does say, which is different to a research project, is we won't give up looking, so we will continue to look. Then we remove the identifiers, the things that identify you as an individual, and we push the data across into a research centre. And that's where the coalition of 2,500 researchers I mentioned will work on the data. So if we don't find something first off, there will be a whole coterie of people from around the world who work on the data to drive up the value for the NHS. So eventually creating a dynamic situation in which we continue to return value to the health system. So that may be you if you're a clinician or an academic in a university. It may be you if you're in training, and we have 700 person years of training built around this project. But to get the new medicines out of this project, we've formed a partnership 
with uh, industry. And this is a pretty competitive partnership that involves 13 companies who are also helping us to work on the data so that we can get therapies more rapidly to benefit the participants in this project or others who may come after us. We also work with some companies that supply us with support services to understand the genome. So let me move on to the various diseases that we have um, once I've shown you the infrastructure. So this is the sequencing uh, machines, and that's our partnership with Illumina in 2014. Uh, we also established the genomic medicine centers. You're in the east of England genomic medicine center. This is here in Cambridge, but it includes north, it in goes all the way north up to Nottinghamshire. Um, this is the sequencing center at Hingston. This was empty in December 2015, and this is the team. Uh, you'll see David there and some of my team uh, working together in this room uh, on the first few days establishing this uh, premises, and that was live in January 2015. This is our data center. It's a rather unimpressive gray building in Corsham in Wiltshire. That's where your data is if you're in this project. And uh, it, it's a very um, good data center because it's very eco-friendly. It's built on top of the government's nuclear bunker. And so there was no particular reason why it's there, except it was the cheapest place to put it. But it turns out there are mine shafts that go down to provide air uh, in the event of something bad happening that could be cleansed for the people down below. And those shafts can be used to suck up fresh air from underground uh, and create a system where it self-cools itself, because these things get very hot. This is uh, our, our biosample center, and so you can now see all the infrastructure for the program. So I'm going to focus on rare inherited disease. Now, rare disease is really debilitating. If I tell you that one third of the people with rare disease will die before their fifth birthday, and that there are people my size who are so disabled that for the families who look after them and the parents of these people are heroic. They wake up, at one of the people who was enrolled in our project woke, woke up at five o'clock having stayed in a hotel in King's Cross to be in an, uh, at an appointment at one o'clock in the afternoon. That's what it takes logistically. It's like a military operation to move some of the very disabled people with these diseases around so they could participate in the project. There are over 7,000 such diseases. We work on about 220 different disorders today, but in fact they reach probably about 1,800 of the disorders. And the key feature of this is there must be unmet diagnostic need. So the person must not have been able already to have a diagnosis from the health system. We want to address the problems the health system hasn't been able to address for these people. So we use standardized criteria to get into the program. We also classify all of the disease characteristics by a standard uh, classification. This is because we may have only one family with a disease in Britain, and we may need to combine data with other families around the world to get line of sight on an answer for these people because they have very rare diseases. So um, we've reported back now on 1738 families. That's 3,399 people. Um, and we're achieving a new diagnosis for between 20 to 25% of people. So we collect a lot of clinical data to do that, and I'll explain why. On the side here is the ability to get a diagnosis. Along the bottom is a disorder where there are 10 clinical features of that disorder, 10 characteristics that you can measure or describe. If you've only one of those, your chance of getting a diagnosis is pretty negligible. If you've got all 10, it dramatically improves your chance of getting line of sight. And I can tell you, we've now analyzed the first of section of our pilot study that we did, and the people with the most characteristics are getting the most diagnosis. So this is borne out. 
I'm going to share with you some of the people who got uh, about uh, stories of some of the people who got answers back for their problem. So this is a family. So in these family trees, I'll show you the squares are men, and if they have shading, the person's affected. The circles are women, and this gentleman uh, was found to be very, very, very had very high blood pressure and developed kidney disease. Eventually, progressing to dialysis, he had a renal transplant. His transplant failed. He was retransplanted. That's quite unusual in the NHS. And his daughter was also affected by this disorder. And they weren't certain what it was, but they knew it was an inherited form of kidney disease. His father, his brother, and his uncle had all died of this. And both he and his daughter were petrified about this young lady who was in her teens, and they thought they might have transmitted this to her. And she was going every month to her doctors for testing. What we found is although his daughter has been very well with the disorder because she's had very good blood pressure control, so her kidneys haven't failed, they've been petrified about this other, their granddaughter. We found a mutation, and here are the family. And this family, this is unusual in medicine, but these people are so pleased they want you to see them. And most people would like to preserve their identity an anonymously. This is a gentleman who's had the two kidney transplants. He's transmitted his mutation before this kidney disease to this lady here. This lady's the mum of this young lady in the middle. So we fed this back to the NHS. They confirmed the diagnosis. They spoke to this gentleman and this lady, and they then went on and tested this young lady. This young lady does not have the mutation, so she does not have to go every month to have her blood pressure checked, her kidney function checked, or uh, blood tests. So she can lapse. This is one of the most important things we can do in medicine, which is to give reassurance. Let me share with you another story. Uh, this is another family that wants you to see them. This is their daughter. She was born and then at four months showed signs of developmental delay. She then developed intractable seizures and no medicine that we have for those conditions made any difference whatsoever to her. She had many tests, including a form of sequencing where we read just the bit that codes of your genome for the proteins that make you function. She joined a particular charity, Syndrome Without a Name, because nobody could tell her why her daughter was like this, and then connected with similar families and joined the 100,000 Genomes Project. So we found this young lady has a mutation that affects sugar transport into the brain. So the, sugar, the, blood, the brain has a barrier between it and the bloodstream to protect the brain, and her uh, gene that transports sugar into the brain wasn't working. And so she, every time the sugar dropped down, she had a seizure. And this was many times a day, and nothing worked for those. This is a mutation that's occurred spontaneously in this child, and mum and dad, for the first time, and this emphasizes what this means for people, know that they don't carry this mutation. Now, they were never going to have another child, but there is now no reason for them to uh, not do that. So the other good thing about this is this isn't going to happen in every case, but what we've been able to do for this young lady is to give her a high-fat diet through the NHS, and there is a mechanism in your and my brain that uses fat. It's for starvation to protect the brain, and your brain can make sugar from fat. So she now makes her sugar from fat, and sh her seizures have reduced, and she showed some developmental improvement. What if we could have caught this shortly after birth? How different could this be? This is another uh, family. Again, the squares are men, the circles are women, and this double band means they're closely related, they're first cousins. 
they had a child who was born and never left the intensive care unit, was in the intensive care unit for four months with in re recurrent infections, fluctuating urology, and unexplained, uh, no diagnosis was made, lots and lots of tests, and the child died at four months. And mum and dad asked for the child to be enrolled in the project because they wanted to know if they had a further child, what the likelihood would be of this condition recurring. So we, none of us knew what it was. So uh, what happened then is unintentionally mum got pregnant. She said, look, I really don't want to know now I'm pregnant because I'm going ahead with this. I don't want you to tell me even if you find something. I'd rather not know. But in December 2015, she became very anxious and made contact and said, look, actually, I really do want to know now because I'm worried about what might happen. And uh, so we uh, analyzed the genomes and we found unexpectedly a change in the DNA in a receptor for vitamin B12. You eat this every day in your diet. It makes you fight infections. It keeps your nervous system intact. It also prevents you from getting anemia. And this child could not transport vitamin B12 inside cells. This is an example of the genome speaking to us because this tells us that this uh, constellation of features all make sense because they are due to vitamin B12 deficiency. So the second child was born in February, uh, February 2016, and I'm sorry to say to you, the NHS tested this child within one week, which is very unusual, and they found it, it was also effective. But we found some cases in the literature where very high doses of vitamin B12 injected once a week have actually changed the course of this. And so that's what was happening. It's too early to be sure, but that child is alive, well, and proceeding along their milestones as a result of this. Now, I'm not going to pretend to you this is going to happen for anybody, most people in this project. Many people won't get that. But if you talk to the mums and dads who have these children, and indeed the people living with the diseases, what they crave above all else is an answer for why they're like they are. Because they know if you or I can tell them an answer for why they're like they are, we understand, we have an insight into the biology. And if we've got an insight into the biology of the disease, we can begin to think about how we develop a treatment. Without that biological insight, there isn't really a prospect of a treatment unless it's by accident. So I'm going to move now to the cancer element of the program. What I'm showing you here is a picture of somebody with a skin tumor um, called melanoma. And there are the lumps in the skin. This is a patient with a, a tumor of your pigment cells in the skin. This is what's called a PET-CT on the left. And what you can see is all the black is cancer. So you can see it's everywhere. Now, this person had a mutation called BRAF, and that allows us to choose a therapy for that person. This is that person before they have an inhibitor of BRAF, a pathway in the melanoma cancer, and this is it after six weeks of therapy. You can see that the black has shrunk away. This is their skin. You can see there's very, few evidence, uh, very little evidence of the cancer. But because a cancer is a disease of disordered genomes and mutations may be many and different in the cancer, one part may have a different set of drivers to the cancer. And sadly, 23 weeks later, the job is not done. This is the disease back. We've eliminated one pathway, another pathway's moved in and taken over. What if you and I could biopsy this cancer on this patient's journey? And what if you and I could use that information to design much better chemotherapy, individualized to that person's tumor? That would allow us to use expensive cancer, expensive cancer drugs we don't have in the health system today because we'd be targeting them to the right people and we wouldn't be giving them to everybody with cancer till you get the right medicine. Now, that's not here today, but it is, I think, coming for some cancers. 
So we're working on most of the almost all of the common cancers and many rare cancers because we think this information will be actionable in patients probably a quarter of the time at least. This has proven very difficult because the standard way in which the NHS takes a tumour sample is to remove it, either a biopsy or a piece of the tissue, the cancer itself at surgery, and they put it in a sort of preservative, an embalming fluid if you like, it's called formalin. And formalin is toxic to DNA, it's very bad news for DNA. So what I've done on the right hand side here is this is all the letters in the genome tiled from left to right, so that might be chromosome 1 there and that's chromosome X down there. And what you can see is that this is fresh tissue and it shows a very even genome, relatively speaking. This centre, which is a cancer centre of excellence in Britain, they lose these two letters from the genome. So they lose it across the genome, but not in any patterns, so it's all random. You can't make sense of it. And then this is another centre in England, and they lose the GC element. So this is not a product that's fit for our health service. And so what we've done is we've re-engineered the whole way the National Health Service manages cancer tissue to do this program so that we can get a high quality cancer genome to give you the answers I was talking about earlier. So these are the cancers we're working on today and you'll see many of the common cancers featured but we've also brought some of the rarer cancers live and recently with David's help we've been able to bring biopsy live because in many cases now today cancer is diagnosed at biopsy and then the patient will move on to some chemotherapy or radiotherapy and so we want to get the cancer at baseline if we can. Also by having biopsy live we can get a piece of tissue from recurrences and also if the person has cancer of unknown primary, which is usually small deposits, we can also include that in the program. We've also been working on infectious disease and this week the Secretary of State for Health will announce as a result of this program in part that we've sequenced 3,000 multidrug resistant uh, tuberculous organisms from Birmingham. This is the TB bacterium and this is TB in the apex of the right lung here uh, and this is a major threat to life worldwide and it's increasingly resistant and that's why we sequence multidrug resistant uh, TB. And the NHS will be announcing this week that it is moving from an old-fashioned culture system to diagnose TB to genomic sequencing. So you can do the sequence and tell you've got TB. Then you can follow up on the sequence and look at the elements in the bacterial genome and see what drugs the person might be resistant to. So you can choose the right combination of, of antibiotics first time. So what do we tell the people who are participating in the program? Well, we tell everybody about information on their main condition, because that's very important. This is a test in the NHS. You must get the result back. And it might be that we can't give you an answer straight away, but we'll keep looking. We also have the opportunity to give information about other serious conditions, which if you knew that, you, that I knew you had a tendency to get that, and there was something we could do in the health system, like hereditary colon cancer, where we could screen you for the colon cancer and possibly remove it before it became serious and therefore avoid a serious problem for you, you would want to know that information. The patients opt to receive that information if they want to. We're also offering the ability to understand if two parents carry the tendency for another child to be born affected with a rare inherited disease and people opt to receive that information. And I can tell you that the overwhelming majority of participants in this program opt to receive these additional findings. Indeed, some people have told us they want everything back. Uh, and then when you explain what everything means, they say, well, maybe I don't want that bit, and maybe I don't want that, this bit. But, you know, so we'll get there, and eventually this will become uh, a technology which will provide life course information. We're also looking at every single gene, protein, 
that comes out of this project for the potential to make a medicine. So we look for chemical signatures in libraries that might be medicines. We look for drugs that sit on shelves of pharmaceutical companies. We look for medicines that are deployed for other diseases, but no one may have thought of bringing them to bear in cancer. So here's an example. This is lung cancer infiltrating the lung. This person is unable really to move from where you're sitting and would be very breathless at, at rest, could not think of going to the shops. They'd really be confined to a small space. This person had an epidermal growth factor mutation and a drug that was going to end on the shelf because of its um, variable response in lung cancer targets this particular mutation and this is that person six weeks later. This person can go to the shops, this person is self-caring and their quality of life is much better and they're nowhere near as breathless. So this is not cure, but it is changing the course of an illness. And if we begin here, for some, just maybe some, we'll be able to get cures. So we're working with industry and this is because we want people to bring medicines to Britain first to be given to patients with rare disease and cancer. And to do that, we have to work with industry. So we've got a pre-competitive consortium, and these people all do slightly different things, where they're working together with us on some rare disease genomes and some cancer genomes. And this is prompting people now to begin to discuss bringing trials to Britain that wouldn't have come here otherwise, because we can put whole genome sequencing alongside it. So this is tough to do. But the mission of Genomics England, which was formed as a wholly owned United Kingdom taxpayer company, it's owned by the Department of Health on your behalf, your, share, your shareholders, it's your money that we use. This was formed as a company because it could move with agility and speed to deliver this project, but it is delivering it on behalf of you. So you are transforming the way the NHS does this. And right now, we're in discussions, and I've come from a meeting today, about the National Health Service commissioning this four patients across our health system from March 2018 onwards. And three years ago, neither David or I could have said with any conviction that they would ever do that. And it's because of this program, the huge altruism of the British people, and the way in which the program is progressing to create new opportunities for patients across our NHS. So we're aiming to leave a legacy of the human capacity and capability through training, the, the infrastructure to deliver the project, and the opportunity for the NHS to be the first in the world to transform genomic health in this country. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank the most important people in this project, which are our participants and patients. And they're at every stage of the project, setting the agenda, setting what we do, setting our priorities, as we have a participant panel of people who consented to the program. So I'd like to thank you all for having me here this evening with David. It's been a real pleasure for both of us. Thanks so much. And if you want to know more, it's here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi. About um, sort of targeted cancer therapies. Because yes. um, Something I've been wondering about is if you're targeting a specific mutation, will, not, will that not create in sort of a really strong selection pressure for the cancer to then become resistant to the drug? Um. That's a really good question. And so what happens is what I showed you there was if you eliminate one pathway, unfortunately, as David and I can attest, there are other parts of the cancer may have different mutations, and so they come to the fore. And sometimes those mutations are quite serious and they progress the disease. 
That's why we, need, we think we need a comprehensive picture of the architecture of the cancer, so, and that may mean sampling more than one part of the cancer, because different parts may be different groups of cells that are driving the cancer, and some of them may predict your response to future agents. So I suspect where we'll end with this is your point's very well made, but once we understand the architecture, we'll be able to develop medicines that target a particular pattern. So when we see this in the NHS, we'll say, okay, this person needs these medicines. So imagine you'd move to a cancer environment where there mightn't be a tumor-specific regime, there might be a mutation-specific regime. That might be for any cancer if you see those portfolio of mutations. We're not there yet. We're nowhere near there, but that's a possibility. So I was wondering, how would you determine that 100,000 genomes will be enough to derive statistically significant associations between mutations, not only in protein coding genes, mm. but also in many regulatory sequences that we don't even know what they do today, um, with occurrence of a certain disease? And how will that influence the design of clinical trials? Yeah. Are we going to see in the future that we no longer segregate patients depending on whether they have breast or urothelial cancer or lung cancer, but we group them according to their mutation portfolio. So it's perhaps easier to start with the, the numbers in terms of the rare genetic disease. And one of the things that we found is that being rare, there is a very strong genetic component in each of these diseases. The real problem has been we don't know which gene it is, we don't know what the mutation is, and every case is different. And as I think we've both shown examples there where the family is analyzed, you find a mutation, and it absolutely answers the question that you didn't expect to find. Uh, in terms of numbers, uh, using this approach, using the whole genome, we've actually gone for very dramatic improvement in diagnostic yield from between 4 and 6% of cases before this approach to, as Mark said, 20 25%, and in some cases up at 50%. Yeah. So we really are able to see with a relatively small number, you can see a swing like that and say, this is worth doing. And I think the NHS has already been very convinced about the progress that has been made towards transitioning this kind of test in, into rare genetic disease. So it absolutely is powerful enough uh, in terms of the size of the study. Perhaps it wasn't known at the outset, but I think it was already suspected. Uh, and so to apportion roughly half the project for the rare genetic disease part is absolutely enough power to convince uh, and, and, and to, to really ensure the, the, the continuation of the program. The cancer is more difficult uh, in the sense that, as we've seen, as indeed the last question uh, suggested, there are so many different mutations that are coming, more than one may contribute to the cancer, and how you treat the first mutation may then lead to a problem with another. Here it's a little bit more uh, in terms of you want to look at the whole picture, as Mark says. Uh, you also actually want to accumulate that knowledge over many cancers so that the pharma companies and the people making the drugs can now take a fresh look at having more agents available so that when the patient recurs another time, there won't be nothing on the shelf. There'll be something new on the shelf. And one can go on monitoring and responding to the cancer to at least turn it into a chronic condition, if not affect a cure. And so that's where it's more the diversity of mutations is within a single cancer that can make a difference. Uh, and, and I think there the numbers game will be great, and I don't think we assume that 100,000 is enough to answer all the problems. The point is that the 100,000 was a decent-sized study to actually demonstrate feasibility in some cases, 
encourage further investment and get the other companies involved and, and so on, particularly for the cancer. The cancer is a longer road. Um, but I think also big enough to really answer enough of the questions to say, yes, this is worth doing. Or indeed, we didn't know three years mm. ago. It might have been, that's it, it's not worth doing, we're going to stop. Uh, and thankfully, we're not in that position. So it's not a fully powered clinical trial as such. That's all to come. And that's all to come, I think, by harnessing the, the population as a whole. Your population will become the research cohort, uh, we hope. And I think that's what will really make the, the inroads into cancer. But during that time, the rare genetic diseases are really getting picked off, treated, perhaps sequenced very near birth so mm. we can actually uh, prevent uh, and, and cause permanent cures as well as putting families' minds at risk. So numbers are partly there. Uh, there's, there's lots of different ways of looking at those numbers, but it's, it's a big enough study to make a big impact. Several questions here now. Still with yellow mics. Oh, no, it is there. I just didn't put it on the slide. It is in there, yeah. So cancer of the pancreas is very important because it has very high two-year mortality. And so we're working on that. I just couldn't fit all of them on the slide, and you'd be able to read it. So we're working on about 15 cancers, but then there's even more because we've got some very rare cancers. So uh, the important thing of this program is that if the NHS and researchers nominate the diseases we work on, and we have to make sure that we know how this works for many cancers so it can be generalizable in the NHS. So that's the distinction. If we were doing a research project, we might spend all the genomes on one cancer or two cancers. Here we can't do that because we have to transform the application for everybody, essentially. So what we're building up is a resource which will contribute with other resources around the world to understanding the architecture of cancer. But actually in our mission, the most of the cancers that we were given in our mission were lung, pancreas, and cancer of unknown primary, and we're working on all three. Questions down here? Well, thank you very much for uh, this talk. Uh, when you said uh, our genomes, our DNA, I was wondering to whom those genomes belong? at the end and whether the public would have access to the knowledge base that would be um, uh, generated from all this data. Thank you. It's a very good question. Your genome is your genome and it's never my genome. I might have 100,000 of your genomes, uh, not 100,000, but 70,000 people's genomes, but they still remain yours. Then you are making gifts to us to help you achieve a diagnosis or something that might be useful for clinical care. I believe nobody should patent elements of the genome. The genome is something that is fundamentally part of us. They may, with additional research and additional biological understanding, develop a medicine which could eventually be developed commercially, but your genome is your genome. Um, so what we do is we have all the genomes stored we make them available to bona fide researchers from around the world. And individuals can, though we tend to discourage this only for the reason that it's very difficult to manage. So I tell you that the genome's about 280 gigabytes in size. It's quite a big, so you have to come with a, a hard drive to take the genome away. So it's quite an effort. We can't send it to you down the web. We have a special pipe from him to me which sends the genomes because they're that big. So, but in certain circumstances, people can ask for the genomes back, and we talk to them about that. One person has asked for their genome back to analyze themselves. 
If you do that, um, we would encourage you only to do that in certain circumstances because we've got a whole flotilla of people working on them. And uh, we tested all the people who do analyzing the genomes in the world that supply those services commercially. 29 companies volunteered. And the ones on our website are the ones that performed the best at that time. We're about to retest that. Uh, and there are new applications coming along. But if you really request it, you can ask for your genome back and we will give it to you. Will it be available like in CBI or something like this? Pardon me? Would it, would it be available in the way that NCBI is sharing uh, so genetic? Uh, what we have done to answer that question is we have created a single central data center because it's very difficult and expensive to ship this data around. It's not like uh, um, genome-wide association studies with a certain number of single variants that are small data sets that can be easily moved around the world. At the moment, it's difficult to do that. So what we do is we invite the world's researchers to volunteer to work on the data in our environment. And what we're doing is we're working with a group of scientists from around the world called the Global Alliance. And what they're doing is building ways of building pipelines that connect data sets so we can, move, we can put data sets alongside each other and harness the talent of the world. So it's like what you're describing except it's on a different scale because it's hard to move data. Hello. I'm asking this on behalf of my partner who's got a genetic, unusual genetic condition, and she asked me to ask, how do you approach your family and how important is it to approach the family and um, so that they provide the information which helps the research? Yes. Is, is, that really a, is that a reasonable question? It's a very good question. Oh. So uh, the actual participants are approached by the clinicians who care for them in the NHS. And anyone can approach the NHS to be part of this program who has a rare inherited disease. Um, we're working on certain disorders at the moment that have been nominated by clinicians, but the clinicians who look after patients can nominate any disease. They're free to do so. The criteria is unmet diagnostic needs. So if you hadn't had a diagnosis, then you could be in this program. And that's important. In terms of other family members, this can be a difficult conversation, and it can sometimes be that uh, other family members don't want to participate. So when we started this project, uh, David and I knew already that having two parents and one affected offspring was very helpful to get line of sight on a diagnosis. But we decided that we would accommodate other family structures because sometimes it's difficult for people to raise these things with their relatives or their relatives are a long distance away or in other countries and can't participate. We've also got families, for example, where dad is no longer a feature in the family. In fact, even if dad is a feature in the family, it can be quite difficult to get dad to show up. Dads, you need to show up. So honestly, it, it can be quite difficult uh, because it really helps us if you have the family, but not everybody can do that. And it can be difficult to discuss these things within families. The consequences of this may have consequences for other family members and children they may have. And that therefore means we've decided to accommodate any family structure we can, as long as we've got the person who's affected by the disease in, in the project. We, you can still be in it. And, and, it. and we have had one or two people whose relatives are overseas. If you can get the blood sample to us, we can take them in. It, the main thing is that if he was once a British citizen, then he's entitled to be in this program. We have to accommodate this. I mean, we may have taken a little vote in June, uh, but we still have to be part of the world. That's quite important. And we have to understand that people are here from other countries and they're entitled to NHS care. But just as we are here 
uh, they are here in our country and they're our friends. They're also, we're in their country and they, you need to be in this program. If you're in the NHS, if you're in this country, you're entitled to be in this program. I'd like to add to that point as well. If you've had a diagnosis or you understand a lot more in yourself than your son is in Australia, uh, we also have very we've close contacts with yeah. an Australian organisation yeah. doing the same, same work. So it's quite possible instead yeah. of transferring a sample over here to transfer the knowledge over there, yes. if your doctor speaks to his doctor, that would really be a vital line to, to transferring either way. So we have partners in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. And if you want to do that, if you write to me, I'll tell you how to do that. Okay. Yes, I'm sorry, I live in the far reaches of, uh, on the edge of uh, the Kent border, so uh, I've only got a couple of train options left. <laughs> <laughs> or Thank you for having me. Thank you.